chapter of Romans. Just by way of quick review, the passages that we have had under study, we've been reading and looking at these past few weeks in the fifth chapter here, are talking about the benefits of believing. Someone might ask, why should I believe in Jesus? What benefit will it be to me to believe in Jesus Christ as you say? Well, Paul has outlined those benefits. He said, when we believe, certain things happen, certain things come into play. And they're not only benefits, but really they go beyond being a benefit to being assurances, assurances of God's love, assurances of his concern, and assurances of his keeping power when we put our faith in him. Isn't it wonderful that when, when you put your faith and your trust in somebody, that you can surrender your life to that person, to that relationship, isn't it wonderful that you can have the confidence that that person will never let you down, will never betray you, that you can rest with that person for the rest of your life? Don't we long for that? In marriages, when we, when we exchange vows and we tell each other, I love you for the rest of our life, till death do us part. I'm committed to supporting you. I'm committed to being in relationship with you. I'm committed to all these things. And oh, how we mean those things and how we want them to be true. True? But in the back of our mind, there's this nagging little question, this nagging little doubt. There's this acquaintance with reality that we know that there are going to be more times than we care to hope uh, that we're going to be let down by this other person and that we're going to let the other person down. True? And so Paul is sharing in this section, and he says you can come into a relationship with God by believing what he says, by trusting his word. And when you come into that relationship, not only does a whole world of benefits open up to you, but you can have the assurance that he will never let you down. That he has the power to keep you in that relationship perfectly. And that indeed he's going to go to work in your life to do all the things that you can't do and transform you in all the ways that you can't do yourself. Now wouldn't you say those are some good assurances? Wonderful. And every single one of us want those kinds of assurances in our life. There isn't a single person in this room that doesn't deal with insecurity or, and or inadequacy, a sense of those things. Every one of us have to combat this constant nagging sense or feeling of worthlessness, that we're not worthy, that we're not capable, that we, we're inadequate to the task, or, or we don't live up to people's expectations, or maybe we don't live up to God's expectations. And hence, we're not loved. We're not liked. We're not worthy. Can you relate to that? Oh, I sure can. I live with that every day, and I, and I go back to the Scriptures, and I say, Lord, but your word says that I am worthy in Christ. Because I believe, because I trust in what you have to say, because I put my faith in Jesus, you've done wonderful things for me. Now the first thing, he says, as we looked at that some weeks ago, the very first thing, because God, because we believe, God justifies us. He makes us right with him. 
prior to believing, we did not have a relationship with God, despite what people want to say and think. You can't have a relationship with another person until first what? You begin to enter into a relationship, you begin to believe what that person tells you. If you don't believe them, if you don't trust them, you don't have a relationship with them. Isn't that true? And so the same thing is true. We come to God. We can only have a relationship with God. We can only be right with God when we believe him and when we trust him. There's no other basis for that. When that happens, we have a relationship with him. And then on the basis of having a relationship with him, Paul says, we have peace with God. Because prior to that, we were at war with God. And God was at war with us. We have peace with God, which leads to peace of God. We can begin to experience God's peace in our life in the midst of our feelings of insecurity and inadequacy and fear and trauma and all these things. God puts his peace in our life, in our heart. When we come back and when we, when we trust him, when we rest in him, when we believe that we're at peace with him. And not only that, Paul goes on to say that we, we have access through Christ into God's grace, God's graciousness, which is abounding, which is overwhelming. And goodness knows we always need grace, don't we? I mean, every time you turn around, every time I turn around, I need grace. I need my wife to extend grace to me. I need my staff to extend grace to me. I need you guys to extend grace to me. I'm, I'm in such a dilemma so many times that I need grace from so many people. I'm always falling short. And I also need God's grace. And though not always will people in our life extend grace to us, God always extends his grace. We're bathed in his grace. Though no one accepts you, though no one loves you, you may think, God always does. Always does. His grace pours out. Well, as if that weren't enough, God goes on to say, because we begin to understand that we're at peace with God, because we begin to understand and, and experience his grace, we begin to rejoice in the hope of God's glory. And not only that, Paul says, we rejoice even in our suffering. We're so overwhelmed that we find ourselves even rejoicing in suffering. We see God's hand and his purposes in our suffering. Great benefits. We are confident and assured that we can even rejoice in suffering. Paul says that we know that our suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. And God is concerned with our character. We often are more concerned with our circumstances, aren't we? God is not so much concerned with circumstances as he is with forming character in us, making us more like Christ every day. And as that character grows and increases, so does our hope increase. We are more hopeful. And remember what we said about hope. It's not just kind of some kind of weak desire. It's we're hopeful. We're born along with this strong hope. And Paul says, and this hope does not disappoint, never lets us down. Why? Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Two more great benefits and assurances. 
God has given us his Holy Spirit. His Spirit who lives in us takes up residence. When he comes, he comes with all of his creative power and ability. The same power that created the universe is resonant in me in God's Spirit. That's awesome when you think about it. God's Spirit is ready to break loose through me and with the same kind of power that created the universe to break through and minister. And it's through the Holy Spirit that I begin to experience God's love. You know, you can't stop very long. You can't meditate very long on the Lord and what he's done for you. You spend 30 seconds quietly meditating on the Lord and the Spirit living in you, and all of a sudden you begin to experience God's love. You begin to experience God's love, and not just eyedroppers. It begins to be poured out. When you wake up in the morning, you're not feeling very thankful. Meditate on the Lord. Just say, God, thank you. And then begin to experience the love of God poured out into your heart. Great benefits from believing and assurances. All of these assurances, all of these benefits are really assurances that when God saves us, he saves us to stay saved. He doesn't let us slip through his fingers. Paul goes on in the next section to characterize what kind of love God loves with, and he's, he, he uses the uh, human example, the highest example of human love, and contrasts that with God's love. And, and the way he does that is he says, you know, as human beings, we'll love. Didn't Jesus say that no greater love has a man than to lay his life down for his friend, right? Jesus, so Jesus characterizes the highest aspect of human love. And so Paul picks up on that. And he says, humanly speaking, we might die for somebody. We might willingly give our life up, uh, but it's so rare. How rare is it? He says, well, for, for a righteous person, hardly anybody would be willing to die. Now, a righteous person, remember, is someone who is moral and ethical and upright. But he says, very possibly, though, for a good person, somebody might be willing to die. Now, a good person is a person who is ethical and moral and upright, but goes beyond that to stir up in you affection for him. They're a person that you love. And, and, and Paul says, maybe, possibly, somebody might dare die for a good person. The whole point being is no one's going to die for a bad person. And with that illustration, he characterizes God's kind of love. No one's going to die for a bad person. You and I wouldn't die for a bad person. We might maybe dare to die for a good person, but certainly not for a bad person. The only one who would die for a bad person is who? Christ, God. You know, immediately we're confronted with the incredible difference between our love, the very best of our love, and God's love. That God died for sinners. Paul goes on in that passage to describe that very process. God died, Christ died for the ungodly. That when we were dead in our sin, Christ died. Unsolicited, we didn't deserve it. We didn't ask for it. 
God just wanted to redeem us. And the only way he could do is die. Now let's look at this for a moment here. I want to pick it up now in the ninth verse of the fifth chapter. We're continuing with our discussion of these assurances, and Paul is going to conclude in these, last, these next three verses. He is going to bring to conclusion this whole section. And the way he does this is to uh, argue that from a very obvious, if God could do a most difficult thing, then certainly he could do a least difficult thing. If he could save us when we were absolutely ungodly, if he could save us when we were lost and hopeless and powerless, then certainly if he could do the greater, then he could do the lesser, he can keep us. If when we were totally vile, if when we were totally horrible sinners, that now when we're his children and when we're better than when we were, he'll keep us. In our sin, when we fall short, God does not cast us away. And very often we experience rejection in our own human relationships when we fall short in those relationships. When we betray a relationship, the other person spurns us. The other person experiences hurt and anger, and they reject us. Not so with God. He paid a heavy price to get us, and he keeps us. And he is big enough to keep working in us. He doesn't reject us. This is the whole import of this passage, and it's vital that as Christians we understand it because it gives us assurance in our faith that when we fall short, that we can get back up, that God has not rejected us. And every one of us has to deal with this because every one of us falls short. Every one of us sins. We sin in our thought life. We carry some of those thoughts out into our, in our behavior and our actions. And it bums us out. We feel unworthy to go to God. We feel like, God, how could you possibly love me? Here I've had this thought over and over and over. I've, had, I've struggled with this behavior over and over and over. I do it willingly. I relish these thoughts. When you're angry at somebody, doesn't it sometimes feel good to be angry at them? You want to be angry, don't you? I mean, you're really angry, and you picture in your mind sometimes punching that person out. Feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. And while it feels good, you go, oh, that's horrible. I shouldn't do that. You don't like what you see. I'm terrible. Right. But you see, that very thought and the relishing of that thought is not enough to drive you from God or have God turn his back. When he saves us, he keeps us. And he keeps us to work in us. And when we grasp that, and we understand that, we are going to be running to him when we find ourselves in those places when we're absolutely hopeless and helpless and say, God, help me. I know that you're there. Help me. And he'll strengthen you to overcome temptation and overcome that sin, that difficulty in your life. He's faithful. 
Now look at this. In this ninth verse, Paul says this. Since we have now been justified, we've been now been made right with God, how have we been made right? He says, by his blood. Since now we have been made right, been justified by his blood, how much more? How much more, Paul says, shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Paul's saying, if God could do the most difficult thing of saving me by shedding Christ's blood, by giving up his own son, how much more will he keep me from his wrath? Now, there's a side of God's nature which demands justice, and he will pour out his wrath on sin. And he has poured his wrath out on the cross on Christ, and that is effective and efficient for all those who put their faith in Christ. They are now shielded, protected, saved from God's ultimate outpouring of wrath in the end time. Now that gives me confidence. And if you read the book of Revelation, and you read about all the pouring out, all the bowls and all the seals, and all the horrible things that are going to happen on this earth to people who are godless and have rejected God, it's nice to know that you're not going to be here for that. Gives me comfort. I don't live in fear of it. I praise God that I, because I believed him that I can have the assurance to know that God has shielded me and protected me from the outpouring of his wrath, not only, not only during the Great Tribulation, but also for all eternity in hell. His great wrath on sin and on sinners who are unrepentant in hell forever. You say, I thought God was a God of love. Yes, he is, but his being loving in that part of his nature doesn't cancel out that part of his nature which demands justice and will pour out wrath on those who are unrepentant. We have to understand those two aspects of God's nature, and they're both perfect, and they're both holy, and they're both right. Justice must be served, and it will. Now, I want you to see something here about this, this issue of blood. How easy is it for us to give up the most precious possession we have for our enemy? Simple thing? No, it's not. It's a very difficult thing. I can't imagine giving up my son's life so that my enemy might go free, if, it, if my son's life could make that kind of difference. I, can't, I don't have a category for it. I don't even have a category for it for my very best friend to give up my son's life. And so if God could do the most difficult thing, if he could save us when we were godless, and by doing it gave up his most precious gift in his possession, his only son, then can't he also keep us from his wrath? Oh, yes. Blood. There's always a, a question about this, and, and most times people struggle especially when they read the Old Testament, they read all the sacrifices in the Jewish law, and they say, why is God so bloody? Why can't everything be nice and neat and clean? Why does there have to be killing of animals and sacrifices and blood here and blood there? And why this emphasis in the New Testament on blood? Well, if you understand 
the reality of blood, the life is in the blood, is it not? I mean, when you're dying, when you've lost blood, what do they do? They give you a transfusion. They give you some more what? Blood. Because life is in the blood. And if you lose your blood, you lose your life. Very simple. So there's a principle. God has caused this all to work. He's put the life in the blood. Now, how does that relate back to sin? Well, in God's economy of things, when justice must be served, he wants us to see and he wants us to have a graphic picture of the terrible cost of sin. That it requires a life. That it requires that blood be shed. That is how how costly sin is. And without that picture, without that understanding, you and I would have a tendency to treat sin very casually, wouldn't we? It's not that big a deal. I mean, you know, we write stuff off all the time, don't we? It's kind of like writing off a debt. You know, you just chalk it up to the IRS. You say, well, I'll just write it off. I'll just kind of ignore it. I'll pretend like it doesn't exist. It's a minor inconvenience. God cannot afford for us, we cannot afford to have God allow us to think of sin and to deal with sin as a minor inconvenience. It is awesomely devastating to his whole creation as well as being insulting to his character and nature. God cannot look on sin. He is so pure. And he must deal with it. And to get us to grasp the gravity of sin, he uses sacrifices, the shedding of blood, something that is very distasteful to us, something that is very hard for us to deal with. Blood. A life must be given. Now, in the Old Testament, we have the, we have the illustration of the Passover lamb, and indeed, the whole Jewish sacrificial system. And in that, those settings, there were the sacrifices of animals. Animals were killed and they were sacrificed. Their blood was sprinkled on the altar. As an act of atonement, the blood would cover. The word atonement means covering. It doesn't really cleanse. It doesn't really eradicate the sin. It only covered over the sin until the one final sacrifice would occur when Jesus' blood would not atone. Atonement is, a not, a, is not a New Testament word, by the way. Atonement is an Old Testament word. Jesus' blood didn't just cover over, didn't obscure the sin. Jesus' blood cleansed the sin and made the final, total, perfect payment. And the word that describes Jesus' death and his sacrifice is the word propitiation. It's a final, total payment. Atonement is an Old Testament word. It just covers over. And so when those animals were sacrificed, their blood covered over the sins of the Israelites. And they looked forward to the one final sacrifice. Imagine you're an Israelite, and you understand the Passover and you understand that the right is that you, you find you bring a spotless animal, a spotless lamb, and that lamb was brought into your home for three days. Brought into your home. Became, in a sense, an intimate part, an intimate part of your family. If you had children, can you imagine how long it would take for those kids to rally around that little lamb and to love it and to pet it and want to sleep with it and do all this stuff? I mean, if we brought a little baby lamb, a spotless, pure little lamb into our house, my little boy would just, I want to take it up to my room. I want it to sleep with me, right? 
Sure. So you've got this little lamb in your house for three days. And then in the beginning of the third day, you get the kids around you and say, now kids, I have to share some things with you. I've got some bad news, but I've got some good news. The lamb must die. Why, Dad? Well, we have to kill it. <gasps> what, did it do something wrong? No, it didn't do anything wrong. We're the ones who've done wrong. And God said that to, to take care of our sins, because we've done wrong, that he'll let us substitute the lamb. The little lamb will give up its life so that we can be forgiven. Okay, kids? Now put yourself in the place of those little kids. What are they going to experience? What are they going to feel in their heart? And especially when you lead the lamb out to slit its throat and to bleed it, to offer it for sacrifice. Is there going to be grieving in that home? Yes. Grieving for the lamb, but more so grieving because the source of that lamb's death was their sins. Graphic example, huh, of the cost of sin. Would you not agree with me? In the first chapter of John's Gospel, John says this, Behold, the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sins of the world. I like to call him John the Identifier. He identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, how did Jesus take away the sins of the world? Was it his life, the way he lived his life? He lived a spotless life. He kept the law perfectly. Paul tells us this in the 8th chapter of Romans. Was it through his life, because he kept God's law perfectly in our place, that he took away the sin of the world? It wasn't through his life. He wasn't just a good man that everybody respected, right? How about this? It was through his teachings. All of his teachings, his ethical, moral teachings, everything he taught was responsible for taking away the sins of men. Right? You mean the, the Jews wouldn't go and they'd hear Jesus preach and they'd hear him teach and they'd walk away and they'd be, be edified and lifted up and feel clean inside? No! You know when, what the Jews felt when they left after Jesus' teaching? They felt their sinfulness. You could not leave after hearing Jesus preach and feel built up. The whole purpose of his preaching was to convict them of their sin so that they would cry out to him for forgiveness. You couldn't go and listen to the Sermon on the Mount and think, oh, how wonderful. I'm edified. You went and heard the Sermon on the Mount and went, wow, that's awesome. I could never be that kind of person. You see, that forces you to him. That forces you to recognize your sinfulness, and it prepares you for owning his death on the cross for you. So it wasn't his teaching. His teaching only set people up. Got him prepared, because he taught the impossible. And in teaching the impossible, they were to be convicted of their need for forgiveness and of their own sinful condition. So if it wasn't his life, it wasn't his teaching that took away sin, how about this? It was his miracles. 
Jesus did all these miracles, and his miracles took away the sin of the world, right? No. Do you realize that Jesus could have lived, could have lived for these whole 2,000 years. He could have been around the globe. These, these days, you know, instead of walking so much, he probably would have taken a plane and flown from, you know, the Middle East to America. He'd have followed the Pope today. <laughs> Maybe he'd have flown with the Pope. Who knows? But here, you know, he could be walking all around, and he sees the sick, he sees the homeless, he goes and ministers to them, he works his miracles. You know what? Even his miracles don't take away the sin of the world. All the glorious and wonderful and powerful things he did did not take away the sin of the world. The only thing that took away the sin of the world, the only thing that dealt with the sin, Paul says, was his blood. His life was given. The writer to the Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And when a person puts their faith in Jesus, when they believe what God says about Jesus and the shedding of his blood, then that person is a beneficiary of all God's grace. He's at peace with God, and he is delivered from God's wrath is very sure wrath. Turn with me to Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 2. I want to read a passage to you. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. Now listen to what Paul says here. This is a wonderful passage. And it really is a commentary on just what we've been talking about. Paul says, verse 1, chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, As for you, you were, now get this, past tense, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. You know what that means? I want you to picture yourself. Has anybody ever nearly drowned? I've nearly drowned a couple times in my life. And I know the terrifying experience of that. Absolutely terrifying. I can remember going down one time, for the proverbial third time, and I could, in my mind, read the headlines. Young boy drowns in surf. I mean, you know, the Daily Breeze likes to do that stuff. <laughs> and I could just read the headlines, and I was going down, I said, that's it. I was caught in a riptide, it was all over. But somehow, mercifully, I managed to escape, and now you have me to plague you each week. <laughs> you can thank God for that. But imagine yourself, it's, Paul is not describing a situation in which you're going down for the third time or the fourth time. He's describing a situation in which you're on the bottom and you're dead. You're, it's all over. He says, when you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, when there was no hope, you were on the bottom. What happened? God reached down on the bottom and pulled you up and gave you new life. That's exactly what he says here. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, notice all this is past tense. Who's he talking to? He's talking to us, the church, people who are believers, people who put their faith in Christ. He's not saying you're still dead in your transgressions and sins. He says you still don't live in them. 
That's not your lifestyle anymore, though you may fall short periodically. When you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, he's talking about Satan. All of us, there's not a single one of us that escape. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time. In other words, each of us have been drawn out of the world. Each of us have been drawn up from the dead. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, he says, we were by nature objects of wrath. Each human being, by nature, is a bullseye target for the bombs of God's wrath. And God provides an avenue of escape through Christ because Christ died and Christ took his wrath. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of his wrath. You see, Paul is saying right there what he says in Romans that when we put our faith in Christ, God has saved us from his wrath. Saved us permanently. Even when I sin today, sometimes that doesn't throw me back in as a target for his wrath. God has saved me, period. Now, you're wondering what we're going to do with sin. We'll get that in the sixth chapter, okay? Verse 4, he says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, I want you to look at this next verse. This next verse, if this doesn't bully you over, I don't know what will. This is absolutely astounding. The very next thing that Paul says, verse 7. Verse 6, I'm sorry. And he says, And God raised us up with Christ. He's given us new life. We're born again. He's raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, when you were born again, you know what happened? You were so completely, totally saved that the net effect is you're already seated in heaven. I'm there. It's just my body needs to catch up. That's, I'm serious. That's not a joke. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you have believed God's word, what he has said, you are born again, and you are presently seated in heavenly realms. Your salvation is so completely done. Is that the net effect is you are, for all intents and purposes, already there. All that remains is the mopping up action. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that assuring? What a benefit, huh? What a benefit to be saved from his wrath and to already be seated with Christ, in Christ, in heavenly realms. No more doubt. God will never cast me away. That only serves to draw me closer to him. Only serves to cause me to thank him and worship him all that much more because of his richness and mercy. 
And he finishes up and he says, For if when we were God's enemies, past tense, an enemy, by dictionary definition, is a person who is hostile and cherishes hatred. That is man's condition. That was our condition before we gave our life over to Christ. We were God's enemies. And people will argue. They argue all the time when I share this with them. They say, I am not God's enemy. Don't say that to me. I am not an enemy of God. I don't hate God. Men by nature hate God. If they're an atheist, they hate God because they deny his very existence. The Bible says that the man who says there is no God is nothing but an utter fool. He's an utter fool. For those people who substitute a, a counterfeit God, a God of their own design, a God that they can easily manage, a God that won't make too many demands on their life, they hate God. They're hostile to God. For those who are wicked and unrighteous, outwardly, outrightly, Paul talks about them in the first chapter of Romans. Remember from verse 18 on? He says those people suppress the truth about God through their unrighteousness. They're enemies. They're hostile. The people who are self-righteous, who think they're okay, who think they do enough good to outweigh their bad, that they don't need God, those people are examples of people who are hostile to God despite the fact that they give lip service to God. And there are great numbers of people who are religious, who are hostile to God. The Pharisees were the classic example of that. And there are people even today who profess to be Christians who are hostile to God because they don't submit to him, because they cannot submit to him, because they don't trust him. They don't believe God. And all that hostility leads to a hatred of God and clearly shows how man is an enemy of God. And Paul says, when we were enemies, God reconciled us. And we're going to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and the richness of it. I thank you, God, that you are a greater God than my mind can even comprehend. I thank you, Lord, that your grace and your mercy overwhelms my sin. Lord, that you don't cast me away because of my falling short. And Father, I thank you for the great confidence that in Christ I am seated right now in heavenly realms. Praise your holy name, Lord. You are worthy of all of my worship, all of my adoration, all of my attention. And Father, I ask you to forgive me for those times I fall short. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that I might surrender to you ever more fully each day. Father, because you have nothing but my best interests in heart. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for this great congregation that you would strengthen them today. Lord, call to mind often throughout the day and the week these great truths, these great benefits of believing and trusting you, these great assurances that meet us at the point of our greatest need our feelings of worthlessness, our feelings of inability and insecurity. 
We thank you, Lord, and we praise your name this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.